Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. It's totally fake news. Made up fake. The people know the president's a liar. I mean, they know that. You're listening to our special U.S. election series, Campaign Confidential. It's been an explosive week in the presidential campaign. President Trump is rushing to have his Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, seated before the end of October. That's to lock in a six to three conservative majority. I love the United States and I love the United States Constitution. The New York Times revealed long sought after details about Trump's tax returns, a dizzying history of businesses gone bust and tax loopholes that led the president to skip US federal income taxes in 10 of the previous 15 years and landed him with $421 million in personal debt. Debt that would come due during his second term, if re-elected. It's totally fake news. Made up fake. We went through the same stories. You could have asked me the same questions four years ago. I had to litigate this and talk about it. Uh, Totally fake news. No, actually, I paid tax. Meanwhile, Tuesday's presidential debate could be the last chance for candidates to sway millions of swing state voters. Just one in ten voters is undecided, and when the second debate rolls around mid-October, up to a third of voters will have cast their ballots already. Around 80 to 90 million Americans will be watching. Biden's debate imperative is to not play Trump's game, stick to COVID and the economy, and avoid getting caught up in culture wars and fact-checking the president. President Trump, meanwhile, goes into the debate with his back against the wall and must link Biden to the radical left. But in this week's podcast episode, we're going to talk about something much deeper than a single headline or event. We're going to talk about racial inequality. People now understand what the struggle was all about. It's another step down a very, very long road toward freedom, justice for all humankind. Black Americans have fought for equality over centuries, and the slow progress can be depressing. Despite low unemployment levels before the pandemic, the median black family in 2020 had just 15% of the wealth of the median white family, a ratio that hasn't budged in more than 50 years. And for nearly all of America's history as an independent country, black Americans have faced systemic problems in voting. Just this week, the UK's Channel 4 News revealed a Trump campaign database of 3.5 million black Americans targeted for, quote, deterrence to discourage them from voting. Thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, which has hit minority communities hardest, and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, no family, no office, and no political party has been able to ignore racial reckoning in 2020. 
I'm Ryan Heath, and you're listening to Episode 7 of Campaign Confidential. To help us break down how the protests against racial injustice may translate into votes in November, I spoke to Derek Johnson, the president and CEO of the most influential civil rights organization in America, the NAACP. If there's a true energy and interest in change, the way we make change in this country is at the ballot box. Derek will tell us what he's most worried about in this election and what he thinks America's electoral system could learn from other parts of the world. But first, I sat down with Politico's Brooke Minters and Eugene Daniels. We had a frank discussion about the Black Lives Matter movement and how it's shaping the political landscape in this election. Brooke, let me start with you. There's 30 million black voters in America. That's one out of every eight registered voters. And critical among them are black women, a group that's voted at a higher rate than any other group in recent elections, and around 90% of them for Democrats. So tell us, what are their motivations and frustrations and anger, and what's it going to translate into in the 2020 election? I think that when you when I talk to my family, when I talk to my friends and just being a black woman, I think that this election is really important to us, and it's important to black women, it's important to black people in general, it's important to people of color in general. And so, you know, I think they are excited to come out and vote. I don't know if they're as excited as they were in 20 or 2008, you know, when my grandmother called me to remind me that I needed to vote, you know, but I do think that there is an excitement around Kamala Harris, but not to the extent of that there was like for Obama. But I think most black people that I've talked to or I've heard are just feel like they have to get out and vote. There is a real sense of urgency with this election. There's like, what's going to happen if there's another four years with Trump? Like, do we need to have contingency plans? What's going to happen the day after the election? Is there going to be a race war? I know that sounds like crazy, but I do think that those are conversations that are actually happening. And People are like scared. And so people are actually going to come out to vote because they actually feel like a lot is at stake. What about voter suppression and intimidation? How worried are black communities? I mean, we've seen a lot of wild claims about voter fraud. We've already seen angry groups of people harassing voters at early voting centers in Virginia. Black voters are very concerned about what could happen at the polls. And we know the Trump campaign is asking for people to join Trump's army, is what is being called by the campaign, to basically poll watch and go there. And what we know about Trump supporters is that often um, when we see them walking around and kind of policing other areas, they come armed. And I think that is something that not just Black voters are talking about, but leaders are worried about as well. Because right now, you know, this is a country that is having a different conversation around race, but it's also sending a lot of people back to their corners. This idea of poll intimidation or voter intimidation, this is not like a new thing in the United States. Like there are clear examples. You can just Google right now and like, you know, or watch any movie about the civil rights in the 60s and you'll see these tactics that they're talking about using right now. This is like nothing new. So it's like, it's not like just a fear, like based off of nothing. Like we've seen this happen before. We saw at the Republican National Convention that there was uh, an unusual number of black speakers, let's say, given the profile and demographics of the party in recent decades. And I wonder how, how has that been received in black communities? 
So I and the other 2020 reporters, we're calling them his black validators, people that, you know, they were saying like, I know racism and Trump's not racist is what they were, you know, a lot of them repeated that word for word. On one end, he talks about how he, you know, black people have never done better economically. But then on the other hand, the experience of listening to him talk and speak about race, the kinds of things that he's done in his past, it's hard to put those two things together as making sense. It, it And when... You have a president who he started out his running saying, you know, Mexicans were rapists, right? Like that was off top. That was the very first thing that he said. And so his record on race is not good. So I think in the black community, there is a strong feeling that Republicans and um, President Trump do not care about black people. Well, is that I guess the key question then is, is that enough to get? Uh, black people voting in the same numbers that they voted for President Obama for his vice president, Joe Biden? Or is there a case of black communities feeling let down by all parties? The level of 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 racist rhetoric that the president has said and the party has kind of like has positioned themselves around has made it seem that more black voters will come out and vote. Yes, maybe they aren't as in love with Vice President Biden as they were with Obama and the same thing with um, uh, Senator Harris. But I do think that there is like, well, we just got it. We got to do something because, I mean, how much worse could it get? Well, that's actually a great moment to pivot to the broader discussion about Black Lives Matter and how it's shaping what we're talking about in America in 2020. You know, when we say Black Lives Matter movement, it is it has escalated from that to like an anti-racist movement. So like BLM is an organization and a chant, whereas like the anti-racist movement involves a lot of different groups. The people who are a lot of the young people who are protesting see the entire system as corrupt. And as Biden, Senator Harris, um, Mike Pence, President Trump, you know, I can name everybody. They think they're all corrupt. And so that is something I think that everyone should remember as we're thinking about like voter turnout. And I think that younger voters expect more. They don't think about power in the same way. So I think America is having a different conversation about race. I am seeing people for the first time, like talk actually talk about race and ask questions about race, white people specifically, in a way that I think is healthy. My partner is white. So we've always talked about race, but there are, you know, there are members of his family who have reached out to me asking questions about race that they have never done that. How when I, as a Black man, you know, in Washington, D.C., walking in my, you know, nice neighborhood when I used to live in Capitol Hill, was asked by people who live there and also by police, what am I doing there? Like, I live here. What the hell are you doing here? Mind your damn business. You know what I mean? So it's like, those are... But it goes back, you told this story, I think, on Twitter. And sorry if I'm misremembering now, but it was a story about you being in grade school and the teacher warning you that other kids might be afraid of you because you're black. And that just broke my heart to read that. Yeah. I think like that. that's happened. I think... I probably every black man, especially, but also black women have that exact same story, right? About how the treatment when you're, when you're a black kid in, in um, my partner's work, they call them um, childhood enders, right? And so if you talk to any black person, you talk about the talk. We're not talking about the birds and the bees. We're talking about the talk about how to interact with the world as a black person. And this is not a conversation that white people have with their family members. It's not something they tell their kids. And so I think, 
if white people in this country can understand that it is actually different and it uh, it impacts the people who you would who maybe they thought it didn't impact, right? I'm 31 years old. I work at Politico. I live in Washington, D.C. You would think that maybe I I would have inoculated myself against the the racism that all Black people feel, and you can't. And I think Black people are exhausted begging white people to pay attention. And this year they have, white people have. But isn't there something different about 2020? Maybe the political reform hasn't come yet, but... The conversations are just different now. Like the fact that we were all stuck in our homes, there was something about white people not being able to leave, right? Like like you literally could not leave your home to ignore it. You could not go to work and hang out with your white group of friends and ignore the things that were happening. It was every single place. It was outside of your walls. And I think that has changed the conversation. Like you said, though, it has not changed that many laws. So be honest with me, how tiring is it to keep reliving racism? I mean, I did it to you with this podcast. I didn't ask the white reporters to do this extra work and the extra thinking. I put it on you guys, and I only thought about it afterwards. I think it depends. I think it depends on the relationships, right? It it depends on who the person is. Like, y'all are asking a lot of Black people, right? You are asking us to relive trauma so that you can understand it. If I give you that, if I allow you in and I give you that trauma and I relive that trauma with you, then it is your job to, one, listen and shut up. Two, to make sure that you don't do those things to other Black people. And three, to call out white people when you see it. And I think that's the key is that people don't want to be uncomfortable. And it's okay being uncomfortable because that's where growth happens. Um, There are going to be people who make mistakes. I think if you choose to be someone, like I've chosen to be someone white people can, white people I know and have a relationship with can come and have these conversations I, you have to also choose to like accept it with grace and like kind of give people the, not, the opportunity to mess up. So it's like about coming to the conversation with some kind of, some kind of pre-education and not just coming completely ignorant because there's, there's nothing worse than having a conversation with someone about your being, right? Like it is very personal. It is about like how I survive in this world and then them just not knowing, not even taking the time to Google. And so I think. To all white people, whether they're in America or other places, if you talk to people of color about being a person of color, educate yourself first in all the ways you think you can. Now it's time to turn to Derek Johnson. Derek Johnson, a president, CEO, NAACP. The NAACP stands for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. It's the largest civil rights organization in America, and it's been around for over 100 years with a mission to ensure a society in which all individuals have equal rights without discrimination based on race. Questions of racial justice and racial injustice have just been at the centre of the political conversation all year long in the United States. We've obviously seen a great mobilisation of individuals and communities on the ground, but we haven't seen a lot of change in Congress so far. And I guess the intersection of those two forces is this election in November. So tell us, what are you most active on and what are you most worried about? Well, we're most active on moving people from the peaceful protests that we see in the streets to the ballot box in November. Uh, If there's a true energy and interest in change, the way we make change in this country 
is at the ballot box uh, through the selection of policymakers who would then walk into office with a value proposition to implement public policy to reflect those values. I'm most concerned about the levels at which conservative forces are willing to completely throw out the rules of engagement in ways in which no one would have ever thought would be conceivable in this nation. In 2018, 2019, one of the big conversations was around voter suppression tactics, uh, whether intentional or the effect of voter suppression. Is that something that's still at the top of your agenda this year? Voter suppression has been a problem in this nation since African-Americans, and probably before, was able to legally vote. Uh, We've seen great progress as a result of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which actually addressed many of the jurisdictions across the country, particularly in the South, that would allow vote suppression to take place. But it was after the Supreme Court decision, Shelby versus Holder, that we've seen the regionalized problem of aggressive vote suppression in Southern states uh, to become a national problem. What Derek is referring to there is a pivotal 2013 Supreme Court decision, Shelby County versus Holder. In short, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 required that nine southern states and certain counties with a history of discriminatory voting laws get federal permission before changing any of their voting rules. It was a process known as pre-clearance. The Supreme Court decided in 2013 that that method for calculating the pre-clearance was outdated and unconstitutional. Since then, over 20 states have enacted some form of new voting restrictions. That's according to the Brennan Center for Justice, a policy and research group that monitors new voting restrictions. Some, like Derek, argue that many of these changes make it more difficult for poor, minority or elderly voters to cast their ballots. Others insist they're just updating voting systems to make them modern and fraud-free. New voting restrictions could include anything, from more stringent voter identification laws to cuts in the number of early voting opportunities. The vote suppression shows up in many ways. It shows up with polling locations closing, polling locations in targeted areas have fewer devices causing longer lines, the changing of polling times without proper notification. We're seeing what couldn't even be conceived of, just the direct attack on an American institution like the Postal Service to create more frustration of voters. And we've seen sort of over the last couple of weeks some data coming out, and it seems that Democrats in general prefer to vote by mail, but that people of color are particularly suspicious of doing that. They want to make sure their vote 100% counts and they're more interested in lining up. Do you have any advice for your members and supporters about the safest way to vote? You know, there's a long history of African-Americans votes not counting as a result of not voting in person. Uh, Questions around the legitimacy of signatures, although there are no writing experts at the polling place, and many other other things. So African-Americans have historically had suspicions around not voting in person. Unfortunately, it will force some people who are health compromised to have to vote in person. So we are encouraging people to do so based on the laws of their particular jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Now, given what's at stake, is there anything that you wish Democrats were doing that you don't see them doing? And I'll give one example that's been pointed out to me is there's been some controversy around 
whether Democrats are willing to knock on doors. I don't know whether the recommendation is go knock on doors in the middle of a health pandemic is the answer. I hope the American voting public recognize this moment for what it is and be more cautious about their decisions in November and not vote out of some level of fear that's not even reasonable, but racialized fear, other than it's fear, tribalism. We need to be voting based on what is the, in the best interest of this nation, the best interest of our future. We are in a, an inflection point. We can either move forward and repair all the injury that we have seen done to our institutions, or we may go to a point in time that was not healthy, but forever damage many of our institutions. For as much as the world may gain from America's democratic system, Derek thinks that America has a lot to learn from the rest of the world. And when it comes to elections particularly, we have to truly look at reforming our election process. Why is it that in Australia, your home country, 96% of the eligible voters vote? Because of universal voting, which is a smart thing to do because now you have a true representative democracy, not a democracy in words, so you can tout it across the globe and yet not practice it at home, but a true democracy where the will and the interests of the voters are heard at the ballot box that reflect the tax dollars that they put into the coffers. But secondly, we need to depoliticize elections. We have politicized just the administration of a fundamental right. That within itself undermine the very democratic principles we claim to live under in this country. We truly need to be advocating after this election for democracy reform. That's much broader than what we, what we have talked about in the past. And that's just not about African-Americans. That is about all of our citizens. Each election thrusts a couple of issues to the forefront of national attention. This year, racial justice is one of them. But support for the Black Lives Matter movement has been slipping since the summer. Today, 55% of Americans express at least some support from the movement, but that's down from 67% in June. As with everything in America this year, racial justice has become increasingly polarizing. While we can't know exactly what the impact will be on who Americans vote for, or even how many of them turn out, it's clear that this issue cuts deep into the identities of tens of millions of Americans. You see plenty more Black Lives Matter signs in yards and windows than you do Biden signs. It's enough to even rival President Trump's famous branding. So no matter how much attention systemic racism gets in the media and the debates, it's not going to be far from the minds of millions of voters. That's all for this week. I'm off next week, but we'll still have a great episode for you, geared to foreign policy and how the elections will impact transatlantic relations. And of course, the regular EU Confidential crew will be back in your feed this Thursday. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez in Brussels. I'm Ryan Heath in New York, saying goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.